This is from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Miss Sandy, earlier for sharing about Japan in brief. Uh, she didn't mention one important story. Ask how the Japanese authorities at the airport upended her fruit smuggling <laughs> ring. They caught her right off the bat. Make sure you ask her about that later. Um, not to mention Sam's Slim Jim smuggling ring, right? Okay. Um, they're very serious about what foods you bring into Japan. Um, hey, it's the last a sermon in this series on generosity. You almost made it. One more to go. Uh, again, I'll say what I've said the last three weeks. Money has a way of making us feel upset at times. And so, again, uh, my encouragement is don't start this sermon mad. I know that we all have heard uh, sermons on money and things that have just caused us to be confused or upset or even hurt. Um, our hope this morning is that you don't start mad. Uh, We have said the last couple weeks, allow the scripture to make you mad, okay? And then take that, those feelings to the Lord uh, in prayer. Uh, Today we're in Acts 2, as I just read. Let me pray for us and we'll take a look at this story about the early church. Father in heaven, thank you for including unworthy people. We go on missions at times, we serve our neighbors, we come here to worship. Some of us read, some of us sing, some of us pray. All of us are here for one thing, and that is to receive from you. No one's here because they're worthy. No one's here because they've earned it. Everything we have is from you. And so I pray this morning that we would continue to receive from you, receive from your word, help me to receive clarity. Lord, allow my words as broken, as polluted as they may be, to not stand in the way of what you desire your people to hear. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. Empower our hearts to hear what you need us to hear this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
As I mentioned, we've been investigating the idea of generosity. And so we started uh, in Luke 5. We looked at uh, uh, the disciples. Uh, um, they had the miraculous catch of fish. They saw who Christ was. They saw what he did and what happened. They chose to walk away from everything. They walked trusting after Jesus. Then we looked at two parables or one parable and then a teaching of Jesus in Luke 12. We looked at the, the foolish rich man. And how his story could cause us to understand what it looks like to give generously. Uh, we looked at how he had enough, and what did he do? He greedily, covetously took more, even though he already had enough. And what is the message Jesus brings to that parable? How foolish it is to try and satisfy what is eternal with that which is temporary. And then we looked as he turns to his disciples and tells them not to worry about what they have or what they'll eat or what they'll wear because they have a loving God that knows what we need and provides it. And so through these last three sermons, we hopefully have been seeing this freedom that God brings to us as his people to participate in this divine exchange rate, I've been calling it, where we can take that which is temporary, that which we cannot take with us, and build something that will last for eternity with it, the kingdom of God. Today we finish up. We're in Acts 2. You may not know, Acts is actually the second part uh, of, by the same author after the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke uh, follows Jesus Christ, his teachings, his life, all the way up into his death and resurrection. Acts then uh, traces the story of the early church building. And the, the uh, outline that uh, the author of Acts, Luke, gives is that the church starts in Jerusalem, it moves to, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Here in Acts 2... We are witnessing this morning the very first major movement of the gospel. And so we're still in Jerusalem. And what I want to point out, there's no teaching in this kind of scripture. There's, it's, a, it's a descriptive scripture, not a prescriptive scripture. There's not like three commands that we can follow from the text. But rather, I have uh, pulled from this a recipe. There's a recipe in this scripture. Three specific components from this scripture combine, and what we see what happens when, when these th three things are combined, there's an explosion of salvation first, and there's a radical expression of generosity. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, look at these ingredients, notice that these ingredients are also, uh, they are essential to kingdom expansion even now. We're going to observe and record the recipe and then build an expectation from there. And so uh, let's take a look at the passage. So this passage in particular, Acts 2, 38 through 47, it begins at the very tail end of, of the Apostle Peter's, the disciple Peter's first sermon in Jerusalem. And so uh, the first ingredient that we have is the gospel message. And in Acts 2, just a few verses before this, in 22 through 24, here is kind of a summary of what Peter has been saying, preaching, to the people in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God in mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this is the good news of the gospel. This is the message that, that God has a definite plan and he planned it ahead of time. It was in his foreknowledge that he sent Jesus Christ, the son of God, God, the son in the flesh 
to die and to be resurrected. And what does that do? It's the culmination of God's plan that saves his people from the bondage of sin and death. What good news. This morning I was with a, a large group of our new members or people who are potential new members in our new members class. And um, we started today, the first uh, session we have with our new members class is the gospel. Why? Because the gospel, as we shared in that class, is not just for people who don't know the gospel. It's not just the starting point of our relationship and we go on from there. We never stop needing it, church. This message of Jesus Christ his death, his resurrection, redeeming us from the, the bondage of sin. We never stop needing it. And so this message of the gospel is the essential truth that we were created by God for his purpose, to be satisfied by him, that sin has, has separated us from him, that, that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the only way to be redeemed or reconciled to him. And then, of course, all that we know leads to our ultimate hope, which is the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. So the first ingredient of this recipe is the gospel message. The second ingredient is the fellowship of believers. We see in this passage that uh, it says here, they were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, many wonders and signs, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. It says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Here we see fellowship, togetherness. It's a key component. It's a key component. God wasn't saving individuals and then keeping them in silos. No, he was saving. And the, all those who were saved in this place were gathered together. They were together. Being together is not just a nice privilege, the unity, the physical gathering of God's people together in one place, it actually has power and it has purpose. Being together has power. It's, it's, the, way of, it's the way God has uh, planned. It's a part of how God has planned kingdom expansion. Not just us going out solo, doing it alone, but being together. It serves as an essential ingredient to the health of the walk of a Christian. So we have the gospel message, we have the fellowship of believers, but really these two ingredients are inert without the third ingredient. The third ingredient renders power to the situation. The third ingredient is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised towards the end to his disciples that a helper would come, a comforter would come, a guide would come, that he himself, his spirit, would come. And so we read in Acts 2, the very beginning, that first it came to the apostles. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And from there, we can see that they were enabled, the apostles were enabled to do the groundbreaking ministry of building the church. They were able to actually speak in different languages. It says here in this passage, they were doing signs and wonders. God gave them a power to move the gospel forward. I love the idea that it's represented here by a fire or a flame. And because we have this explosion of salvation, you have the ingredients of the gospel message, you have the fellowship of believers, but it really takes the spark of the Holy Spirit to set it all off. 
Secondly, it comes to all who hear and believe. Verse 38, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers believers as well. How? It empowers us to salvation. It empowers us to obedience. It empowers us, I love this phrase, to the awe of the soul. They're amazed at what they're seeing. This is because the Spirit is there. It empowers the growth of the body. It empowers unity and maturity. It empowers, in general, all those things add up to something, the work of the kingdom, the Holy Spirit. And so we see here this explosive expansion of God's people, but then that's not the end of the story. There's also this radical expression of generosity and this is what we're calling the, the, to respond joyfully, or the joyful response from this passage. The people have seen what? The, the extravagant generosity of God's gospel. What Jesus Christ has done in full for them already. We, they have the encouragement of the fellowship of believers and they have the empowerment of the, of the spirit. And what happens? They respond to it. I've read some of these verses already. They devoted themselves. Here's their response. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They're studying together. They're learning together. There's accountability together. They're praying for their own needs and others' needs together. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need and day by day, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having favor with all people and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Spirit has arrived and it's expanding, not just the church numerically. It's incredible. The f- one sermon, 3,000 souls saved. I've only done that two times in my life. Um, <laughs> never. Um, Uh, that's incredible. But then that's not where it ended day by day by day. As, as the spirit is there, more and more people are gathered into the kingdom of God, but that's not it. It's not just numerical growth. What's happening. Spiritual growth is taking place. They're learning together. They're caring for each other. They're maturing together. They're reading, they're praying, they're caring, but there's also this, we can't avoid it. This radical expression of generosity this radical expression of generosity. And it comes from the fact that they are praising God, the praise of God for what he has done. It's, it's, it's no thing to do what they are doing, to sell what they are selling and give what they are giving. Now, there's no coercion here. Peter didn't finish a four-week series on generosity, okay? Not, he didn't do that. Those who were selling were selling of their own accord, from their own heart. Those who were giving were giving from their own heart. The gospel, God's good news, the relationship that results from that, the people being together, the spark of the spirit, what did it do? It, it sparked this radical generosity amongst God's people. Now, that's the story. Not everything in the story is to be exemplified. Uh, many times, I'm sure some of you have heard that, well, this is the way the church ought to do it now. This is not a call to communal living. That's not what this passage is about. 
Acts 2, as one author puts it, is a narrative about the historic fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel by the renewal of his people in Jerusalem. So this is just the beginning of what God is doing. It's a fulfillment of of promise to the Israelites. And while we're not going to grab from this, like, here's how we should live, here's a command that we should do, there is something here that we can take note of. Church, wherever the gospel is today, wherever God's people are together today, where the Holy Spirit is today, what should we expect from that? What does that recipe conclude? What does that recipe produce? There will be an expansion of God's kingdom and God's people will have radical expressions of generosity. That's what happens. The recipe hasn't changed. The outcome hasn't changed. And so as we move into application, more of a practical piece of the sermon, the question I have is do, do any of us feel a spark in our hearts of the Holy Spirit this morning? There could be lots of things we're, we're thinking about feeling this morning. The first might be, maybe you're hearing for the first time or in, with fresh ears, the, the, the generous good news of Jesus Christ. The idea that Jesus Christ, even though we don't deserve it, even though we haven't done anything to earn it, Jesus Christ in his generosity has given us an opportunity, given us everything we need to be reconciled to God, to have our sins forgiven and have death, the pangs of death, loosed from us. I'm getting to know the pastor over at Northeast Prison. His name's Josh Desch, great guy. Listening to one of his sermons over the last couple of weeks, he makes the comment that Uh, The gospel is the message of giving. The gospel is the message of giving. And he quotes John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave. He gave. Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection, what does it offer? Full coverage of every single thing we've ever done or ever will do. That is generous. This gift As I often like to say, it's redundant, but it's a free gift. It's good to say it. It's offered to every single person and it's received by faith. And so this morning, if you feel that spark, if that idea of the forgiveness of your sins, the the redemption of your soul, salvation that's free, if that interests you, don't snuff that spark out. Give your life to Jesus Christ and trust him. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian already and we're on this topic of generosity and so maybe the question could be, well, I I want to be more generous. And the the question would be, well, how do I advance my personal generosity? And I have uh, some ideas for us. First, I want to remind us that any change in our life, any change from one position where God is moving us to another, it is a slow process. We're reorienting ourselves from our sinful ways to God's ways, and God has patience for it. And so as we move away from from the things of this world and want to reorient ourselves towards kingdom things, we have to be patient. But it starts always with confession and repentance. And what is confession and repentance? It's going back to that same gospel we just shared with those who've never heard it. Confession and repentance is the ongoing admittance of, man, I have a deep debt with God. My account is not flush. I do things against him. I am a sinner. And it's also a receiving of his good forgiveness over and over and over and over. And I could just keep saying it forever again. 
That's what confession and repentance is. It's a washing of God's love and generosity, a washing of God's love and generosity, a washing of God's love and generosity. We need it, church. We need it. We can't live without it. And every time we come to him in confession and repentance, we come to him with nothing. And what do we get in return? His overflowing love towards us, of which there is no end, there is no limit. Is there anything more generous than that? Nothing. And so the first place we go to learn about generosity is first to the cross of Jesus Christ with our sin. And we receive in return his grace and his forgiveness. The only thing that creates generosity in us is God's generosity towards us. That's it. There's nothing else. We can't just decide one day, well, I'm going to be more generous. It doesn't work that way. Now, maybe this morning you're specifically feeling the call to begin the act of giving from your resources to the kingdom. And now, listen, I know how that conversation starts. I've had it myself. There's a lot of questions at the front end of that. Well, uh, things are tight right now. I want to do it, but things are tight. I I want to do it, but I'm not sure we have enough. I I want to do it, but I want to be financially secure. I I want to pay my mortgage first or or whatever it is. Listen, I want to say this this morning to all of us. If If the spark is there, if you feel the desire to give more, Don't let greed or worry snuff it out. And if you want to have some reference for that, go back to the last two sermons where Jesus talks about both of those things. What is the promise? Trust God. Trust Christ. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. God is calling us with that spark, that desire to give into a place of more trust of him. He's calling us to trust him. The question might then be, well, where do I begin? If I want to start giving, where do I begin? Now, listen, um, God has been training his people for generosity since he's had a people. And I do believe that while not every giving law from the Old Testament carries over equally to the New Testament, I think there's wisdom in looking at how God was training Israel to be generous. Here's some examples. There were, there were many laws in Leviticus about harvesting your, your crops. We, I've mentioned one a couple weeks ago that you're to leave the edges of your crops. Don't, don't harvest all the way to the edge. Leave that for the sojourner, for the needy. There's another one here about first fruits. When you're harvesting as an Israelite, before you even measure what else you have, you're to bring the first thing you harvest to God and sacrifice. Another one, lesser known, the year of Jubilee. Um, every 50 years, every 50 years, the Israelites were supposed to actually reset every sale that was made, every debt that was owed, every slave that was purchased, and go back it, it, to the original land that God had given them in Israel. That's, that is crazy. Think about this. You could buy land and buy land and buy land, and, and, you're, and you, maybe one generation has really expanded the land ownings of your family. Every 50 years, it all went back. Why? It was to teach the Israelites that what God had given them was sufficient. They didn't need to be massive landholders to have security. No, they had to go back and let God's generosity be enough. In the passage where God 
explains this practice, he makes the statement, the land belongs to me. (laughs) The land belongs to me. Thirdly, another one that all of you will love. Some of you may walk out at this one. Uh, Tithing, all right, tithing. Why did God have the Israelites tithing their earnings, their spices, all these things? Give the first tenth to train them for generosity. It's my thinking that if we want to begin this journey of generosity and maybe we haven't been giving, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. I believe that God's wisdom in using these things as training tools for generosity still work. And so as a practical way of advice, if you will, working with these concepts, I believe if you want to begin this process of releasing your heart from the obsession with the material needing more or being afraid of not having enough, a good place to start is committing to give a tithe, one-tenth, the first 10% of your earnings to kingdom work. Kingdom work. And what I mean by that is before you even evaluate, think about how this matches up with the things that God has taught the Israelites in the Old Testament and teaching us as well. Before you evaluate everything you have or everything you owe, before calculating everything else, giving it away and letting it go to God. It's, in a, it's a way that you can test the, the promise of seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It's gonna cause us to reset our entire economic mindset, just like a year of Jubilee might. Okay, I've gotta start from the beginning and reorient all of it. We can look and find where the edges are. Now to be clear, Nothing is simple or easy or instant, but it's a good place to start. The quiet moments, uh, especially after something like that, we're not done. Maybe you've been giving, maybe you wanna invest more. As you've been hearing this kind of digging into the, the heart of generosity, where it comes from, how generous God has been to us. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've been giving, but I want to invest more. I want to participate in that exchange rate where I can take the things that don't last and build things that do. I think the question is answered by, I think, a great example of these early Israelites. They responded joyfully with everything they had for kingdom work. Lots of ministries. There's so much kingdom work going on, even in our community. Lots of ministries need our time, our talent, our treasure. There's thousands of different ways you can make this investment. The important thing, the key thing, is letting the Spirit lead you. Letting the Spirit lead you. And here's some exciting questions. This is where it becomes easy. Here's some questions. What kingdom work excites you? That's not your own excitement. That's the Spirit getting you interested in something. That's not your own excitement. What eternal investment do you want to make? There's questions on the joyful response card that say, what has God given me? That's an evaluation of what we have. What needs are in front of me? What of my resources is God calling me to use to meet that need? Listen, 
There's no better place to give. And maybe some of you are expecting me to be like, here's how you write a check to Grace Presbyterian Church. There's no better place to give than where God is leading you to give. There's no better place. There's no better place. We don't have a, 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 a wall around effective kingdom work. There's so many faithful Christians out there trying to reach the lost, disciple, grow Christians, expand the kingdom. The question is, what do we have to support those things? Here's the bottom line. Church, there's no reason, there's no reason in all of scripture, in any of our hearts, to expect less than the explosive expansion of the kingdom and radical expression of generosity in our midst. Why expect less than that? Because we have the message of the gospel, it's here. We know the good news, we speak the good news. We have the fellowship of believers, we're gathered together, and we have the Holy Spirit. Why should we expect less? So the real question this morning as we finish up this series, as we've seen how the disciples saw who Christ was and, and they saw what he did and it caused them to walk trustfully with him, as we've seen Jesus teaching on greed and worry, he wants us to give generously and live simply. The question really is, in our joy of the gospel, what God has given us, how is he calling us to respond? Some of you know as I turn the page, it's time for the Lord's Supper, right? Our original mission statement here as a church, it's been shortened over time. Some of you may not know this, our original mission statement is this, in joyful response to God's grace, we as broken people seek to live out the gospel together by loving God in worship, loving each other in community, and loving Columbia and the world through service and witness. This church, this church 12, 13 years ago was planted in a joyful response to God's grace, what he had already given us, what he already was doing in his kingdom. The, the, the idea that he would save sinners like us. And that's why we feel comfortable putting that word broken in here. Because we know what we have received, at least in part, we want to share that with others. This church was planted as a joyful response to God's grace and, and with the gospel message which we have carried with us, with the gathering of God's people, which is so important to this place, and with the spark of the Holy Spirit, we are where we are today. We are where we are today. One of the things, uh, by, same, by those same ingredients, I believe will continue to become what God wants us to be, but one of the things that we not me, but, but uh, the, those who planted this church decided to do was whenever we can, every week, as we can, we have the Lord's Supper. Why? Why do we do it every week? We could save 15, 20 minutes. We could all be going to lunch in about five minutes, right? Because we want to hold on to that gift that God has given us. The Lord's Supper is a reminder as we eat the bread and drink the cup that he has done everything for us in his crucifixion. He's done everything for us in his resurrection. We come with nothing, and he gives us everything. And so through the Lord's Supper, even this morning, some 12 and something years later, we perpetuate the joyful response to God, and that's what I pray this will be this morning. And so if you understand in your heart and in your mind that you require God's grace, that you're an unworthy sinner, that's ugly language, but true of our hearts, 
we believe and confess that God's grace is offered only through Jesus Christ, offered through his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection, his ascension and his return, if we are unified with God's people through baptism, we are invited this morning for another joyful response to everything God has given us. And that's what this testimony is. When you come and you take a bread and you take a juice or a wine, you're responding joyfully to what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now, this morning, if you can't make that testimony, if, you're, if you don't believe that you are a sinner, you don't require God's grace, then the scriptures say this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning you don't believe these things, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and, and drinks, uh, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this morning, we'll just take a few moments to quietly pray, let's evaluate. Those of you who are making that testimony this morning, let us pray in this moment for joy in our hearts for what God has given us. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing in just a moment. Father, As we eat this small morsel of bread and we drink this small amount of wine or juice, let it be a reminder, just a sign or a symbol, Lord. We don't have to gorge ourselves on it to know or to remember. Let it be a sign and a symbol of your generosity toward us, even when we didn't deserve a drop of it. You plunged us beneath the surface. You lavished on us the good news of salvation. You gave us your Holy Spirit, regenerating our hearts, opening our eyes to the truth. So this morning as we eat, as we drink, may this supper be a token, a symbol, a sign, a reminder of what you have given us and exactly how meaningful that is in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.